back to Gold Shields. It's Dan Murphy here with my partner in crime, Tom Smith, on a little bit of a different episode. Right, Tom? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, believe it or not, and, and shockingly, this was our last show of season one. And you know what, Dan? When, when we came up with this idea, I think we had the first seven guests lined up. And then after that, we're like, all right, well, what are we going to do? And 51 shows later, we're, we're signing off on our, our season one episode. And we're booked out for months. We're booked out for months with amazing guests. You know, Tom, it has been an unbelievable pleasure to do this with you. And I'm looking forward to the future on this show. Um, I had no idea that the chemistry between you and me would work the way it does in a format like this. I had no idea that this would even work. But it was a great idea, and it has evolved into something I cherish, which is we, are, we have a purpose and a mission in addition to giving great stories and great content. And, and that has meant a lot to me. And I look forward to every chance we get to talk about the show and plan for it and all that stuff. And um, it's, it, the feedback we get from people, this has been an unbelievable year. I mean, if you told me last year at this time when we first talked about it, we'd be here right now, I would have said, no way. There's just no way. But look where we are. We have met unbel- some of the guests we've had this year. I was just scrolling through them today. Unbelievable people with stories that I've been blown away. I've- it's been, yeah. I mean, you know, we get we get tongue tied a lot. You know, we've done other people's shows, thankfully, and and so humble to be asked, you know, to be on other podcasts and other shows. And we've gotten asked, how many times have we gotten asked what's your what's a memorable show? We can't answer that. We can't, you know, because there's endless because we'll name four or five. And then forget, oh, crap, what about that? You know, we've been beyond blessed with our guests. And make no mistake about it, everyone who's, who's watching this, this kind of sign-off for season one, this show is our guests. They run it. They propel it. They're the content. They're everything we wanted in a show is our guests. Me and you kind of just keep the guardrails there. and We become fans. We're just fans listening to amazing people. And we have been blessed with meeting some incredible people. And that continues. And we're trying to keep up with booking these people that we're running into or being introduced to by people who we're meeting through the show and through our career. And it's been our goal is to give you, the audience, the best content, the best life stories, individual experience stories, the best uh advice and guidance in certain areas when it comes to things like wellness. Our goal is to help the profession any way we can. And as a result, that helps communities. Um, We have a a loftier goal than when we started out with, but that's good. I think it's evolved and I feel good about it. It, It's kind of altruistic, right? We want to do good with this show. Use our platform for positive things. Showcase exceptional people. Let people get a glimpse into what it's like to live this life, would it be the military at a high level or policing at a high level and investigations and stuff, and what the community and what the public doesn't necessarily see or know about the men and women who dedicate their lives towards protecting us. So it, it's been just, what an honor. What an honor it's been. It's been, it's been an honor. I mean, we're, we're blown away by people we've interviewed. You know, that, that there's been times that 
me and you become speechless. You know, again, not 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 pinpointing any particular show, but you know, you look back on some of the shows with like Anthony Espada with with the Cleveland thing, and and me and you not knowing what to say. Uh, Tanya and and Kimber, you know, and and just an endless amount of times that me and you get stuck in in what do you say to these these heroic people who have done so much uh you know out there and and we're blessed and and you know what we'll give a little you know a little taste to everyone out there we have lined up we're 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 picking up where we left off with our guests i mean what we have coming up in season two is going to be you know which going to try to raise it a little that's going to be hard but that's why not I mean, l- let's give it a shot. And the people we have are incredible. Uh, I can't wait, you know, to get that rolling, which will be the beginning of January. You know, uh, we're going to take a couple of weeks off for, for the holidays and to kind of restart our battery a little. Uh, but we have so many great ideas that we have for, for next season. Uh, the guests are already lined up. Cold cases we're going to jump into with family members of people. We're going to be looking at things around the world, not just limited to the United States. We have all sorts of things up our sleeve that we're not going to get tell you much about. You know, I look back to the very first show that we had a guest on. We did an intro show, but then we had Louie Anamone. We had an icon in the NYPD who also happens to be an exceptional human being and whose heart is still in helping the men and women of law enforcement. And he did a great job sharing some of his wisdom from his incredible career and very down to earth. You and I never thought, unless we were in a lot of trouble, we were ever going to talk to Louis Anamone personally, right? I mean, he was the top dog and we were just, you know, lower level functionaries, so to speak. But he didn't make us feel that way. He appreciates everybody that does this profession uh, and respects them all. And that came through and it was just a remarkable kickoff. We, we looked at each other when we were done speaking with him, like, I can't believe that we just had that conversation with that man. I mean, and uh, we want to thank him if he's listening to this. Thank you. To start everything off. And he challenged us, didn't he? He challenged us with a cold case that we still have on our website, right? And we're going to continue to do that. We want to raise awareness to things. If people have an understanding about something, we want to raise awareness. We want to help bring closure to cold cases when they're brought to our attention. So we have so many purposes. Yep. And he just emailed me actually the other day and I told you about it just to tell everyone we did the JFK show and he actually emailed us about how proud he was of us. And and for everyone out there, when you're when you're two NYPD detectives and someone like Louis Anamone says he's proud of you, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Uh, and before we go out the door. For season one, we both feel this way, but I'll say it and you can follow up with it. We do not have a show without Ovet, who's our production manager, and Taylor, our graphic designer. This show does not exist without the two of them. And I can't say that enough. We don't. They're, they're unbelievable. And, you know, the commitment and the hours and the time and the, the skill uh, and the talent that they bring to this show, whether it be in terms of graphics or the way we lay things out and the content, all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes, it just seems like the two of us sitting in a mic talking and it is, but there's a lot that goes in before and after to make it come out as a finished product. 
that we hope makes sense for the audience. And um, they are invaluable, and they are, uh, you know, so so trusted by us because whenever they come up with an idea, we never have a problem with it. I mean, <laughs> they seem to know what they're. I mean, we just stand back and go, "Wow, I'm blown away by that." Of course, we're doing it. So thank you, Taylor. Thank you, Ovet. You guys are the bomb. My partner, which this ride doesn't happen without you either. Uh, thank you for a, a unbelievable year that I can't say enough about. Uh, it's it's a great ride, and we're going to continue it. And everyone out there, stay tuned for some updates and some into you know look into season two with some of the ideas we have. We're going to release a little tease of uh, guests that we have coming up. The website's going to get changed a little bit with some new uh, stuff on there over the holidays and ready for January. So, Dan, thank you for a great year, a memorable year, and can't wait for 2024 and season two of Gold Shield. Likewise, brother. Thank you. And um, for Gold Shields, for Tom and I, we just want to say we wish everyone a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, if that's what you celebrate, a Happy New Year a restful time, hopefully, with family and friends. And we'll get right back on the horse at the beginning of the year. We look forward to that. And thank you to everybody. Thank you very much. We will see you all soon. Back to Gold Shields. The Best True Crime Plus. I'm your host, Dan Murphy, along with my co-host and partner in crime, Tom Smith. How are you doing today, buddy? Good. Good we got Tom. a great How show today, but we got a couple of announcements we want to get out there. They're pretty important among our community and, and our friends. Uh, Tom, what do you got for us, buddy? Yeah, our, uh, you know, got to put our sponsor out there, Bonefrog Coffee Company, Tim Crookshank and his team are incredible, uh, supporting U.S. Navy SEAL community and their families. Uh, they have their holiday buzz, their their Sons of Valor K-Cups, their Stay Frosty Tactical Blends, their Holiday Frogman Dark Roast, holiday gift boxes, which that box is incredible with what they provide in a gift box. It's a, It would be an incredible gift for a coffee lover in your family or a friend, and of course, their gift cards. Make sure you go to bonefrogcoffee.com slash gold shields. Use the promo code gold shields. Get a great percentage off your purchase and a subscription. Bonefrogcoffee.com slash gold shields. Promo code gold best shields. Best coffee I've ever and drank, one guys. More, no nonsense. The best and all I drink now. Get Bonefrog. It's a great Even if you don't know the guy who, did, who makes it, it doesn't matter. It's the best stuff there is. It happens to be made by somebody who's a phenomenal individual. So get yourself some bone frog. Absolutely. Uh, that's all Danny drinks. Uh, so that says a lot. Uh, the other announcement we got, we actually just got about 20 minutes ago from our great friend, Randy Sutton, who's the founder CEO of the wounded blue, who is one of our closest affiliates. Uh, we've been close with with Randy and the Wounded Blue since the beginning of this show. He was one of the first people we hooked up with, and for good reason. The Wounded Blue provides support to wounded officers around this entire country, not just physically, but mentally also. And Randy does so many 
uh, great fundraisers to provide more funding for the Wounded Blue and officers throughout this country. It's an amazing, amazing organization. And Randy was working on this one project for almost a year. We talked about it. He was close. It wasn't close. And it finally all got done. And it is really, really wild. Uh, it's called Guitars for Cops. And what Randy was able to do was get all these incredible uh, country singers to sign a guitar. There's 100 guitars that are for sale. And some of the names are George Strait, Miranda Lambert, Reba McIntyre, Kid Rock, Toby Keith, Blake Shelton, Dirks Bentley, Dan Chris Murphy. Young, G- uh, <laughs> Jamie, <laughs> Jamie Johnson, the Oak Ridge Boys, Aaron Lewis, Gabby Barnett, and a so bunch of So only the others. biggest names in country music. Right, there's That's one, right. There's 100 guitars that all these individuals signed, okay? They're for fans, corporate partners, and anyone supporting law enforcement. They're $1,000, okay? But it's all tax deductible, and it all, all goes to the Wounded Blue, all right? So make sure you go to guitars, the number four, cops.com. Get involved in this. It's a great uh, organization, and it's a great reason to back them up. The Wounded Blue, you can always reach Randy at Randy at thewoundedblue.org is his email. You can email him directly. One more time, guitars, the number four, cops.com. We're really, really proud to be involved in this and Randy asking us to, to read that for him. So uh, make sure you go to that, back up the Wounded Blue. So Dan, we got sort of a good guess for our season finale show. His resume's a and little thin. I don't think... A little thin on the resume. A little bit. You know, we need to get people with a resume and, and have done something in their lives, but once in a while we'll, you know, we'll come up with people like Andrew <laughs> Sully Sullivan, who, you know, he only had a 20-year career in the U.S. Navy, uh, six years in uh, SEAL Team 2, 11 years in developmental group. Unreal. I mean, the resume, I could sit here and you could sit here, Dan, for a half hour going over his resume. So we're not going to do that. We're just going to simply let Sully talk about himself, which he may not like, but he's going to do it anyway, because <laughs> that's the show. Uh, so, Sully, welcome to Gold yep. Shields, my man. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you uh, having me. And hey, I want to second the, the Bone Frog Coffee, man. Isn't it? Legit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you know Timmy, right? I know of him. We never worked together, but uh, we've crossed paths from, from dynamite time individual, to time. dynamite man. Yeah, it's good stuff. So good. I could use yep. some right now. I'm still recovering <laughs> oh, from Army Navy. Really? So it's, it's been a struggle. Yeah, they tried to kill me up there, guys. <laughs> and nothing to do with the result of the game, just the overall atmosphere. No, it's under protest. <laughs> Didn't happen. <laughs> He was across the line, Navy won. We're not giving it to him. That's all you got to say. That yeah. worked. It was a great game, though. It uh, was a great game. You know. It was. It was a good it, game. It, it, yeah, it was. I mean, I actually got, I got home to, to watch the end of it. Uh, and you know what? You know, being a sports fan, you, you get tense watching it. You're sitting at home. You have nothing to do with the game. You know, whether win or lose, it doesn't matter. But you, you just get that chill watching, you know, uh, a play like that at the end and the game on the line, all that good stuff. 
It's just a different kind of football than you're used to seeing on Saturdays, right? Because, you know, old school teams and they run, they play, you know, strategy. And, man, it's hard to know it's football, old school. So it's kind of cool to see. And obviously there's a lot of fan support that, at those things. So, And, the you know, the, the celebration of it and it is so overwhelming. It's great to it see that patriotism in one spot at one time. Uh, with the uniforms, whether you're Army, whether you're Navy, whatever, but everyone being there in one spot is so spectacular to watch. The, the really flyover is, the, the family. Oh, yeah. yeah. The Kraft family, Gillette, did a fantastic job. It's the first time they played it up there. Um, the city of Boston just opened up. It, it was, it was wow, pretty that's phenomenal. Cool. That's really cool. Uh, so, listen, we're going to get right into this. Uh, because you're just, there's so much to talk about and we've had, we've had Navy SEALs on before. Uh, and it's, it's kind of funny how, not funny, but it's interesting. I should say each, each one we talked to has a different kind of path, has a different story, has a different, you know, view of it. And that's, what's so interesting. We're talking to guys from the teams, uh, their view of it varies of why they got into it, how they got into it. And that's where we're going to start with you. Uh, you know, your your attraction to the military and then your path to the teams. How'd that all go? I mean, I, this might sound a little strange, but I was never particularly attracted to the military. I was attracted to the team specifically. And, you know, I, I, I feel like I didn't choose the teams. The, the teams chose me. I... I had the idea in my head for a long time of wanting to go in and trying to be a SEAL, but it was such a big commitment. Uh, and I, you know, I was a little bit older when I went in 24. And at that point in time, the thought of, of leaving my job, leaving my family and, and going and doing it. And if I, if I get hurt, if I fail, then, then where am I at? I'm on a boat. So for me, they're just, the motivation wasn't there until 9-11 happened. Um, and, and that was it. And then it clicked. It's like, it, it was a calling. I knew I needed to do something. And the only thing I wanted to do was, was be up in the front, um, you know, helping make our country safe. So first chance I got, I went out and I found a recruiter and said, uh, when can I uh, get up to boot camp? I want to be a SEAL. And as soon as they got me out of there, I went to boot camp, ended up in Buds. And it was all, you know, down Well, you know, I, I, Tom and I were, <laughs> as you probably know, first responders to the World Trade Center. We worked on... Um, Worked there for months in, in various capacities, dealing with the effects of that attack. It happened in our hometown. We lost friends. We lost people we grew up with, all of it. So anytime somebody tells a story about being motivated by that to go into the military, especially at the high level you did, I have so much respect and gratitude for what you did. Thank you. Because as we stood on that pile, and we were, our job was to look for people, uh, if not people, parts. All we could think was, I feel like somebody just held my arms behind my back and is punching away at my stomach and I can't fight back. Somebody's got to answer for this. Somebody has to take it to these people that did this. So thank you for being part of the team that took it to them. Thank you. That's reciprocated. Trust me. Right? We have so much respect for you guys and, and I appreciate everything you've done throughout your careers. And that's why I do what I do now. Um, just, just because th that holds true to your community as well. And kills me to see some of the press you guys get these days. And I want to do everything I think I can do to change. Yeah. That and, so. and we'll get into that. Right. Yeah. And you know what? That would, yeah. And that was a big part of, of starting this show 
you know, and, and that was one of the conversations Dan ha- Dan and I had in the beginning of this of of bringing attention to great things that are happening instead of the the garbage you see on a daily basis. Because there's so many stories like yours and you that no one knows about and should know about, you know, because you being that age and seeing 9-11, you could have had a totally different response to it. You know, being you weren't 18, you out of high school, going into the military, you were older. You could have had a totally different response to that, but just felt this calling, as you called it, which is a perfect description because that's what it is to go. And then not even just go into the military, which which probably was their highest recruiting time was after 9-11 in every branch of the service. But you were going to go to the most elite force this country has to offer. And that's a big commitment. That's not just, okay, I'm going to go to boot camp and, and you know get deployed somewhere. That is a life-changing decision. Absolutely. I mean, I've always been competitive. And if I'm going to do something, I want to be the best at it. So that, that was kind of my intention. And to be completely honest, I didn't know a ton about the SEAL teams other than maybe reading a few books, you know, Dick Marchenko and, um, you know, seeing Charlie Sheen and in, in, in his movie in the late 80s and early 90s. Right. And that was it. And I'm like, yeah, that that's for me, guys. I, I need to do that. I need to be on the front lines. I, I want to protect my family, my community. And the way that I felt like I could do that was was being being up there in the front with those uh, with those warriors, and, and that's that's what I tried to do. So you had a number of deployments, wow. and how was Buds? Oh, oh yeah, Buds. <laughs> Buds. Yeah. I mean, if you wake up for the next eight months, jump in a cold shower, and then kick each other in the nuts, that's yeah. that's Buds right there. <laughs> it just it 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 doesn't stop. It it's draining, and it, it, I say this a lot. At 24, 25 in buds is is rough compared to 18 to 21. It, your body just doesn't heal the same way. Not that I'm complaining because mentally it's it's a lot easier at that age. Physically, it's it's harder. But if you have the right mindset and you want something bad enough, you're willing to endure the physical pain and the mental um, anguish in order to make it happen. And that was my mindset going into it. I knew it was going to suck. Um, I didn't particularly know how, but I knew it was going to suck. And you just take everything one evolution at a time, um, one day at a time. And you just make it through the day to the next day, make it through the week to the next week, the month to the next month and phase, phase, and then and then you through it. And uh, and then it gets hard, right? And and then you really understand what, what dedication and, and hard work is after you make it through BUDS. So what follows BUDS? You have several different schools you go to, correct? Yeah, uh, you know, it changes every now and again. When I was there, we went buds to jump school. Back then, we did army jump school, and now they have Navy has their own one, um, which was rough. Um, not rough that it was hard. It was just the pace was so much slower than we had just finished. Um, so a lot of guys will end up going down there and getting in trouble. I say a lot, a few guys, but um, back to San Diego, and then we do SQT, which is SEAL qualification training, which. If you think of BUDS is is just a physical test, you don't really learn much. Um, SQT is the advanced training where you start to learn basic tactics and, and marksmanship and and orientation and other things that will be useful to you when you actually get to the team. Uh, and it's 
it's more of a a gentleman's course. You're not really getting messed with the way you are in buds. You're your first name basis with your instructors, and typically guys don't get dropped or quit from SQT. So it's it's um, you know you start to actually feel like you're a team guy at that point. Um, and you finish it up, you go do three weeks of cold weather training in Alaska, which is a lot of fun, <laughs> and then you end up in uh, end up at your team, whatever team you go to. Now one of the one of the little misconceptions you're not you're not a seal after buds, correct? No. Correct, and, and that's a big misconception. There's a lot of people who think that. So when do you actually get your trident? So it's ever changing. Um, there there was a time where you would get your trident after buds. Then it got changed to after SQT. I can't remember. God, I should know this. You know, say the the mind's the first thing to go, or the memory's the first thing to go, right? Um, I can't remember which. I, yeah, I, yeah. I think, <laughs> yeah, I can't remember. Go figure. So e- either way, I think now it's after SQT. So right, right when you're done, and man, and even back in the day, you it might still happen. You check up to the team, and they would take your trident away and, and make you earn it because because you really haven't earned it at that part. You've only gotten through the training. You haven't worked with a team that you're going to deploy with. So, you know, I, I remember stories when I got to team two, they used to have a, they call it the bird cage because the trident, they also call it your bird and they would take it and they would put it in the bird cage and you wouldn't get it back until you were, uh, you earned it back and it would, could take up to a year. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, you want something bad enough, you're going to do it and you're going to put up with it and you're every day. And I, I kind of live my life, life like this. And I teach this every day. I treat like a selection every day, even to this day, someone's watching me. And wants my job, and if I'm not doing it well enough or getting better at it, then they're going to take my job. And that's the philosophy you need to have from buds to the day you retire. And then, if you want to be successful in retirement, I would. That's I would a still great do it. point because it really is a mindset that will carry you to success in any occupation. If you think about it, look at the NFL. It is. You better be watching over your shoulder, right? You're being watched by everybody. Look at corporate America. You're being watched by everybody and evaluated on a regular basis. It's just the way it is in life, right? You're as good as your last performance. It is. Yeah. And then the reward system's different, right? If if I don't do my job, then I'm not the guy on the mission. Somebody else is. And I want to be the guy on the mission. So NFL, you don't do your job, you lose money. It it affects your paycheck. You're not a starter anymore. Right. Absolutely right. So you go to SEAL Team 2 to start things off. Uh, Now, do you get to... You just get placed there? Is it a kind of manpower thing or is there a kind of wish list? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So you have a wish list and you can pick your top three teams. And to be honest, at that time, it didn't really matter. It mattered more, um, I don't know, early in, in the 90s up into the early 2000s, the teams would have different parts of the world. So if you were at team two, you were that cold weather team. Team four, you were going to South America. So guys wanted to be in certain areas, they would pick certain teams, but they changed that around with the rotation cycle where all the teams are, are really, are they going where the war is at this point. So um, I knew I wanted to be on the East Coast. That's where my, my wife was from and, and my family's all East Coast. And my top three picks were, were East Coast teams. Um, and I don't know that two was one of them. It probably was. Um, and that's where I ended up. So I was fine with that. And I knew two was one of the original SEAL teams and, and had a long history and a legacy. And I was actually really excited about that. And yeah, no complaints. And, you know, I showed up and they were on deployment. So it was a lot of paint and walls and sweeping <laughs> floors until they got back. 
<laughs> wow. Made yeah. buds work. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to war. And you're like, pick up that paintbrush. <laughs> <laughs> while, while you're tried and is sitting yeah, in yeah, a birdcage. Yeah. And you yeah, get right, out of right. that. <laughs> Thank God that wasn't happening when I was there. I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> but you know what? I've said this before. Uh, and, and Dan had mentioned it right before we went. Uh, right before we started the show of how much respect we have for Navy SEALs. And and I mentioned this, I use a lot of sports analogies because I'm a sports freak. You I know, that thing. trident is the Stanley Cup, the Heisman, the, the World trophy. Series trophy, the NFL, the Lombardi trophy, all wrapped up in a one, as far as I'm concerned. That is the absolute top of the line in my world. And Dan, you know, we both share that. Uh, that's why it means so much to have you on the show. Uh, it just means a lot because it's, it's, it's not a normal accomplishment. You know, it's not a, you know, it's not easy. It is maybe the hardest thing you've ever done. Uh, and then deploying obviously, uh, is another level. Well, I was married, so that 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 was probably the hardest thing I've ever done. But that you know, tried into close second, right? Yeah. <laughs> just kidding, guys. God, touche. Just kidding. <laughs> Can we go up the air for a minute? Because I got a lot to say about that. We're going to leave. <laughs> Notice I said was married. Um, no, a hundred percent. Like the, uh, you know, we, we joke um, that that's. It's the hallmark of our community. We're, we're these weird guys that were in the middle of a combat situation and we're cracking jokes. It, it just, it's scientific or yeah, I don't know if scientific is a word, but uh, psychologically proven to, to be a, an asset in that type of situation. And for me, the, the Trident really was what I wanted and worked for. And I worked every day to keep it. And you, you got to have that mentality that that thing's on loan until I finish. And Every day, I, we have a saying, earn your trident every day. And I did. And it just goes along with the mentality we just talked about. So I, you know, a lot of people try. Most people try and don't get it. And in the same token, a lot of people get it and die wearing it. And uh, you know, it, it is the, one of the most cherished things I have, you know, obviously, second to my kids. But uh, yeah, it, it means the world to me. So. And rightly so. Yeah, that's so powerful what you just said. Wow. Rightly so. Wow. You know, we, we could probably do a show with you for an hour and a half just scratching the surface of some of the things that you saw and learned and did in the SEALs, and we don't mean to be dismissive of that, but we do want to talk about, and one of the things we have seen on our other guests who have been SEALs is you continue that life of service, that life of selflessness, because that's really what it is, and what you're doing right now really intrigues Tom and I, and we, we love it, and it couldn't be more timely. So please, if you don't mind, if there's anything else you want to share from your SEAL career, by all means, but we're anxious to dive into what it is you're involved in now and why. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess I'll just have to come back on, guys. That you you like got an invite, open invitation. Right? Trust okay. me. Okay. Uh, open. Absolutely <laughs> open. Any, any you time you want. All right. We should do an in-person one with some some beers and maybe some whiskey or something, and then we'll have a real conversation, right? Oh, uh, well, that Absolutely. is going to happen. Is this for is sure. that like arm, arm twisting going on right there? <laughs> that, you feel that? Yeah. That's I am so happen. there. Yeah, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> we're good. Yeah. <laughs> um. No, I, I appreciate it. It's I, I tell people I, I've always been motivated by service. And for me, going into the military was about serving my community and my family and my friends. And I, when I, I medically retired in 2020 and 
I, I wanted to teach and I wanted to teach law enforcement along with anybody else who, who wanted to learn this critical skill set that I just developed over the last two decades. So I started a training company. And honestly, most of the people I was training were tier one special operations and government agencies and the occasional SWAT team. And the reason being is you want guys with my background, you're paying for guys with my background. And most police departments couldn't afford it. So really all the police training I was doing was me just volunteering for guys I already knew because I had a lot of relationships developed through my career. Um, I've been training cops my entire time in the military. It's just how we give back to the community that takes care of us while we're overseas. And it, you know, 2020 to 2021, I'm out here making money, teaching people and watching all these critical incidents play out on TV and getting to watch firsthand on body cameras or security cameras and and then seeing the outrage from the from some people in the public and watching officers get charged or careers ruined or disciplined. And I'm thinking, man, it's not their fault that that's how they've been taught to handle these situations. And you're persecuting these guys or and women. And I think, man, if they just did this one thing different in training or added this one thing to training, that that wouldn't have happened. And that's kind of where the idea came up of, well, how do we get these guys the training? Uh, and uh, guys, I'll say guys, but I mean, men and women, it's, it's, it's ambiguous. The, so I, I, started a nonprofit. I reached out to uh, an army, tier one army operator that I was friends with at the time. And I reached out to Paul Fitzgerald, who is the retired superintendent of Boston police. And I pitched them my idea. And I said, Hey guys, can you help? And they loved the idea. And and that's what we did. So last year, January timeframe, I started the nonprofit. I reached out to all my contacts for help with building my business plan and, and getting some, some seed money to start this thing. And what do I need to do? Talking to police officers, what do you want? What do you need? How can I service your organization, your community, so you guys you know, feel comfortable going into a situation, specifically or, or primarily active shooter or, or active terror? And you know, I got all that feedback, and I, I built a course. And in August of last year, we, we went hot. And we started primarily in Massachusetts because I grew up there, and I am very close with a lot of Boston police officers. And I also strategically thought if I could take a bunch of Navy SEALs and Army special operators and bring them into a liberal state like Massachusetts and sell them on me training cops on tactics that I could take that anywhere. And they loved it. Absolutely. I've gotten money from the state both years, last year and this year. Um, I have a line item on their budget and it go, it's gone up and hopefully it'll keep going up. Uh, we are teaching fundamental tactics. Just, hey, this is how you enter a building where someone's trying to take lives. And, and this is how you do it the right way. And we do scenario-based training. So these officers are put into stressful situations where they have to problem solve. And the first time they see it isn't when there's an actual event going on. And it, it's like all we've close to... Uh, 850 officers, I think, trained so far. We've raised $650,000 in 16 months, and we are going strong. I've got calls from 16 16 departments in 16 different states. And right now, my only limiting factor is I just don't have enough money. And I mean, you can give me $100 million and I wouldn't have enough money because there are that many officers that, that we want to help. 
So that's it. I have it, uh, so much. Res- that's all right. I'm sorry. sorry go ahead, but I saw an interview you did recently, and uh, I don't know if it was recently. It had to be. You talked about the uh, the deficiency in training in police world, and you're absolutely right. And even departments that think that they're training enough really aren't. I mean, there's nobody in the world trains more than the Navy SEALs. You know that. If you're not in combat, you're training because you got to be your muscle memory has to kick in. It has to be second nature. And Tom and I were just talking the other day, and we've talked about this before. The NYPD, for all its good intentions, had too many cops and too old school of a style and an approach towards things like firearms and tactics training. It simply is, is outdated, and it's not sufficient at all to get you to where you should be should you come into a critical incident situation. And those of us who've been on the street and did our time and worked in heavy, busy places know that you pick up more by watching the veterans than anything else that you'll ever learned. In and in we call it the fun house up in the Bronx. But as well-meaning as it is, they just didn't prioritize it the way they should have. If you want to save the city, if you want to save funerals, if you want to save lawsuits, if you want to make the optics better, you got to train your people better. And they just don't seem to get that, right? I think it's an epidemic across the country. Law enforcement is, we're understaffed. we got to have people on the streets. So we'll bring you in once a year for your one day of firearms and tactics and then back out. And that's what it was. Yeah, that's what it is. And, and they're training to, to shoot a qual. They're not training to be in a, in a shooting situation, right? And that's across the country. There are departments that are more progressive, but they still need help. And there's organizations out there teaching it. But, it, it, you know, a lot of the curriculums are, are decent, but not not most of them. And they need to be upgraded. And, yeah, I, I try to – I always preface this with this – This I, I will staunchly defend law enforcement. I'll defend cops all day long. But I think we need to hold cities, departments, and you know the policymakers accountable because we're not providing the, tra- the level of training that needs to be out there. And it's I'm talking very specifically about less than one percent of an officer's job, right? That that's it. I think on the whole, police officers do a fantastic, amazing job at what they do, and and I'm appreciative that I have people like you guys out there willing to defend me and my family um, domestically, but. The thing that happens the least in a police officer's career is to be in an active shooting or to be in a situation where you shoot, right? Less than half cops out there will ever shoot their gun real world. So you don't, you're playing the the game of of odds. Like the odds of this happening to me are so slim. Why should I invest in training that's going to teach me how to handle a situation that I probably won't be in in my career? Unfortunately, when it does happen, it's catastrophic, right? And, and, then it leads to lawsuits, which cost the cities more money than they would have paid probably if they had just paid for the training from the get-go. And that may not, you know, New York might not fit that bill just because you guys are so big, but most places it does. So, you know, that's in, until that time comes, and, and I'm an advocate for that as well. And until that time comes, I'm just going to give this training away because I want you guys to have the knowledge that I have. I spent my entire career training and being in active shooter situations. That's it. I didn't have to go down and give tickets. I didn't have to go respond to domestics. I didn't have to, I had to go hunt people that wanted to kill Americans. And and I got really good at it, as did all the guys that I worked with. I want to pass that knowledge on. That, that's it. That's amazing. Uh, I mean, to take that on, and we've said it on other shows, uh, that the correlation between the military and, and law enforcement are are close. You know, they're, they're, you see so much 
commonality in what we do. Uh, what was the question I have for you? Uh, what was the one I'm sure you did before you got into this and started really getting out there, your research of, of problems that were going on in, in police departments. What was the one tactical error that kept you kept seeing that you said, okay, that has to change? I wish I could say there was one. I mean, it, it's, I, and I mean this, here's what I'll say. The easiest way that I can fix and what I do the most is I change the, I focus on fundamentals. And and I think there's a, a really significant lack of fundamentals in training of law enforcement. Whether you want to talk about at the academy level for patrol officers or in SWAT teams, because they want the latest and greatest but they have to master the fundamentals before they can start adding things onto their um, daily routine. So when I've come in to train these departments, there really isn't a basic understanding of how to enter a room, how to clear a corner, fields of fire, weapons discipline. It is it is day one, week one. And that's stuff that needs to be taught in the academy. Like You shouldn't be bringing me in to teach someone how to transition from a rifle to a pistol. Right, that should be taught in the academy. You should be bringing me in to talk, teach someone how to go find an active shooter safely as possible and eliminate the threat. But my training has to start with the things that haven't been taught, and, and that's fundamental. So I've heard you talk about um, when to shoot, when not to shoot, how to know the difference, and how to employ tactics that can help you avoid using that deadly physical force. And even as a SEAL, it was kind of surprising for me uh, to read you talk about this. Uh, how SEALs, it's not just about shooting people. I mean, if you can avoid that, you're looking to do that as well. Um, that to me was kind of, yeah. 100%. So tell me a little bit about that. Now, we have all, I think we can all agree, we've seen uh, body cam footage of situations where officers go not the right way in the past few years in this country. And some of it has to do with the, the cuffs being put on cops and restraint and, and defunding that all kinds of pressure and heat and cops are not acting the same way and they're being trained in a different way. And when you see an officer backing up and backing up and backing up and letting somebody come at them, I, I want to lose my mind. I want to yell into the, the video I'm watching. What are you doing? But it's, it's failure to understand de-escalation tactics, failure to understand how to, how to take control of a situation and be in control as opposed to looking like you're on the run. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on in policing that Tom and I didn't experience. And so when it comes to that, knowing when to shoot and when not to shoot, tell me a little bit about that and about some of the stuff you would be training them on, because that's a really important moment, you know? Yeah. And, and you know, there's this conception and I've had people interview me actually say this, that SEALs go in and they just, wreak havoc and kill everybody. And, and that's it. And, and that couldn't be further from the truth, right? We are a surgical unit and very strategic. And I kill one innocent person overseas and it may change the perception of that community towards our, you know, the reason that we're there. So for me, the hardest thing in combat I've ever done is not take a shot. Um, and I said this on another show and I'll say it again. I've never lost a second of sleep over someone I've killed. Never, not one, but I've lost probably months of my life or someone that I didn't shoot. And the reason being is, you know, there are ROEs. I have to abide by them. And th there are, you know, 
obviously times where you're on the cusp and you don't know, but you, you have to follow your ROEs. And well, what if I didn't take that shot and that person went and blew up an American convoy and killed a bunch of Americans? Like that weighs heavy on me. That's the stuff I think about. Um, with regards to the tactics of law enforcement, I think if you provide someone with the right tools, then they're going to have more options to employ. So if you don't train officers how to respond tactically to situations where, you know, it, it could potentially come violent, then they're going zero to 100 instantly. So they hit that red line and their first thing is, well, let me pull my gun. If I can teach them how to maneuver tactically, how to set up that L, how to take cover, distance, angles, all these things we talk about in my course, it becomes a natural de-escalation technique because you're now putting yourself into a better position to make decisions over time instead of having to make that split second decision because you allowed someone to close the distance and now they have a knife or they have a gun or they don't have a weapon at all, but you don't know it because you've allowed yourself to be compromised. So, you know, I... I I don't call myself a de-escalation instructor, but I think you're going to get more in the way of de-escalation than than most de-escalation courses by going through a course that I'm teaching. For that reason, so the training the training that you do is uh, let me cut you off, Tom. Go ahead, Pieta. Point you would make. No, no, when no. When you no. look at um, nope, somebody's in a critical situation, and it can be something that's going to escalate either to a fist fight or, or a knife or a gun. And you're a cop and you're there in uniform or plain clothes. You're dealing with the situation. You, in order to de-escalate, you have to be calm. You can't be in a state of high agitation and de-escalate another person. It doesn't work. It's like yelling at somebody, calm down. Has anybody ever calmed down when they've been yelled at and told to calm down? <laughs> no, it, it, it doesn't work. So how do you stay calm in those situations? It's training. Realistic training. It is. You have to be put in those situations. Yeah, that, that's, you know, everything we do is realistic. We, we, if you were to ask me what I teach, I teach problem solving under stress. That's it. Problem solving under stress. And you can apply that to every part of your job, a traffic stop. You can apply that to a warrant service, a domestic response, an active shooter, right? I chose the hardest response, which is that active shooter, active terror, because now I can degrade, downgrade it to other less critical incidents, which could immediately turn into a significant critical incident, right? So, and, and that's it, problem solving. That You have to put people under stress to teach them how to work under stress. And that, does not, that doesn't happen in the majority of policing today. It doesn't. And if it does, it's a 40, at most a 40-hour course. Usually it's an eight-hour course, one day. In service training. That's it. And Dan and I had said that. We had we actually had a conversation last night uh about just the problems going on in, in police departments. And and what drives you nuts is, you know, the, the whole defund the police thing that was going on and, and still kind of reels its ugly head every once in a while. And people don't realize that the first thing that gets cut is training. Because it's easy. Just cut it out of the budget, done and finished. And then the the community people wonder why things are going wrong or police departments wonder why things are going wrong because the hours that are needed to train a cop how to do, like you said, be in a stressful situation isn't there. And it's not, you know, again, not we've all been there. You on a completely different level than, than Dan and I, but 
stressful situations are not easy. They're hard. And your mind is going in a thousand directions at a thousand miles an hour. And you have to try to compartmentalize all that to come to a good ending. And that's only going to come, like you said, Sully, training and over and over and over again. And, you know, the quicker these departments just get on. And I think uh, I think a good part of it is leadership, too. And realizing that that the leaders of these departments need their men and women to be on point. Uh, agreed. And, and we, we've had this issue in the military. A lot of what we do in the military is antiquated. We're very fortunate in the soft world where we kind of we walk the gray and we break away from some of that uh, military mindset to be able to get things done. And it it doesn't happen in in the most of the military. Law enforcement's that way, too. Right. On the training side, if you think about the majority of your training comes on the job. Right. But so how do you train on the job for something that may happen once in your career? Right. It's really you, you can't is the answer. And then. For the people that are teaching it, if you're self-training, which happens a lot in policing because it's budget friendly, right? So now you have officers that have never been in a situation teaching how to respond to that situation. And then it just gets perpetuated generation after generation. And, you know, in the SEAL teams, we, we changed the culture and we, I would spend 12 months training for a four month deployment, right? So one year, for me to go overseas for it would be very specific, a lot of it, to what I was going to be on uh, doing on that deployment. Law enforcement, at best, is 40 hours of training a year in service training. How can you expect a response to a critical incident like an active shooter, an act of terror, based on a 40-hour training schedule per year? So, you know, and I don't know that I have the solution. My thought initially was, hey, we, we need more officers and we need a training schedule, like work for three weeks, train for one week every month. So plus up 25 percent. So you can go on a rotation where now you are getting one week of training every month and still getting paid for it. And, you know, you, 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 it, 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 to me, that would help not just the training side. It would help the mental health side. It would help the you know, officers would be, I think, a lot happier. You, your home life would probably be a little bit better because, you know, you're getting you know, a little downtime. So I don't know. I don't know if that's something cops would even be interested in. Right. I don't know, but I, I, I think know for a fact it would help. Leasing profession in general in America the last couple of years, it's almost like in a lot of cities, it's been thrown out on the table. All right. Let, we're willing to take a look at everything to see how it, how it can be done better. Training is absolutely vital. And I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think some people might think that would be a lot, but if you made that training valuable and you made it uh, very relevant and pertinent to what it is a cop does every day. And not I think how many training sessions you sit in that are about, oh, you have to watch this hour-long training video on OSHA. OSHA, workplace safety, right? Now go out and work the streets of the South Bronx on a midnight. Yeah, workplace safety. What really? I mean, that's the kind of stuff that you do because it checks a box. But if you think about it, putting people in stressful situations, giving them alternatives and ways to deal with certain situations and making it muscle memory as opposed to, uh, I don't know what to do in this situation, or I'm having a bad day, so this guy yelled at me, so I just I went off on him. You know, that kind of stuff stops a lot of trouble in its path. It really does. Um, do I think that the profession would embrace it? Not right now. To say the least, I think you're seeing <laughs> no. that firsthand. No. But it would be, it yeah. would be amazing. Yeah. 
I think a lot of the younger cops, a lot of the younger cops would, would really enjoy it. And uh, I see the, when I do these trainings, they're voluntary for the most part. You know, they put it out there and whatever cops from the departments want to come, they come. And it's a lot of young cops. There's some older ones, men and women. And the people that come are are excited every, to be there and they want more. Time. And, you know. No, I was just going to say, we, we one time, uh, and it just popped into my head, just remembering this as you're talking. Uh, when I got into anti-crime in 94, uh, we went for a training one time. It was one night down in the South Bronx in a like, you know, uh, empty area, vacant area of the South Bronx near the stadium, actually. And there were a bunch of streets, closed, closed uh, stores and, and warehouses and all that. But what we did that night was the best training night I ever had on the job. We were literally in our cars fly around the corner, jump out, chase a guy. Now, he was another cop, but it was a scenario. Chase him down the street, get into an altercation and all that. And you think about it in, in 30 years. Now we go into details that, that, you know, that doesn't fit or whatever. But you think about in a 30-year in career, I did that one, one night. Time. One night and got more and got and got more out of right and got more out of that night than thirty years ago into the range. That's what we call our annual firearms and tactics section qualification is the outdoor range. So you got to go to the range one day a year, and you go there and your fifty rounds are what count, and you go home, and you're qualified. And everybody goes out drinking, basically, and And then you get it. And then there's a shooting, Sorry, no. and the NYPD wonders why their their miss rate is eighty percent. I, I had a department rate recently, and you know sometimes if if they have the ability to do it, we'll do a range day. And I when I do my range day, it's how we apply it tactically. Uh, you know, I'm not necessarily going in there and talking about form and function. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about hey angles and distance, and this is shooting offhand, shooting while moving, things that they can take into a, an active shooter situation. And, you know, we'll set them up to practice and we'll give them, you know, a center target, a black dot, and, and they'll be pretty, pretty good from five, seven yards. And then I'll add just a little bit of stress and, you know, people are off the, off the target and that's seven feet away or seven yards away. Now think about those officers responding to an active shooter in a school with a bunch of kids and they have to take a shot where if they miss that round's continuing on until it hits something else. You have to own every round that comes out of your gun as a police officer, every single round. And I was going to say, every no, day please. we went out to the, to the up, outdoor range and the firearms and tactics section guys would give us a sit down first before we went out to the range. And the sit down was a number of things that go over basics. And it's, it's not bad. They do the right thing in certain ways, but they will talk about hit potential. They'll say, all right, last year, 2023, in New York City, NYPD had, you know, 152 gunfights or whatever, uh, 600 rounds sent down range, and a total of 12 people dead, six cops shot. They give us the, all the stats, and then they say our hit potential was 18%. 18 out of every 100 rounds fired hit the intended target. Where did the other 82 go? It's New York City. It's congested. They're going into walls, into grandma's head. Who knows where they go? But the problem is, then they took us out in the range and did a standard qual. 
All right, from the seven-yard line, three rounds, <laughs> one hand unsupported on the whistle. <laughs> Yeah. No. Don't change. Right. Don't change. Yeah. Right. Every every department I go to, and I start shooting and moving and asking them to do some not even complicated. It's the first time in their career that they've ever done it, and that, that it's it's pretty mind boggling, right? And it's because we're set in that antiquated way, and we're just not ready or willing to change. And and I'm trying to introduce that at the departmental headshed level, like, hey, th- this isn't difficult. I your instructors can take what I just taught and teach it all the time. It's not hard. And uh, we just we just got to familiarize and introduce people to some of the stuff that we're doing. And it doesn't have to be with me. There are other companies with tier one guys teaching this stuff. I, I don't think there's any other nonprofits, but I know guys that on their weekends will go teach their hometown police department just because they want to give them the training. It's, and like everything else, you know, the, the bad part of this is and we've all experienced it. Wait till something bad happens. And then. Maybe we'll we'll change it, and maybe we'll we'll tweak this. But you know, especially in the PD, in in the NYPD, you know, Dan, that always seemed to be the problem. Wait till something what, happens. What I changed mean, since Uvalde? What changed? What's changed since Uvalde? Nothing. And I, I hate to say that Uvalde is the standard in most places. That is the standard response. Maybe not what happened, but the the level of training of the officers who responded to Uvalde. At least half of those officers had active shooter training. And, and it still happened, right? Because they don't train experientially, right? They don't set up scenarios in most cases. I know it does happen in some places, but not everywhere. So, the, you know, if, if, if we're not taking, and, and this is the whole thing I was telling you guys, I, I did an AAR for the marathon bombing with, with Fitzy. And if you're not taking that critical data, that lessons learned, and then applying it to how you change your, develop your training routine in your curriculum, then it's a waste of time. And unfortunately, that's what seems to be happening with a lot of these critical incidents. It's national news and then it dies down, but nothing really changes. Oh, great. Hey, we're going to do an eight-hour course where we have someone teach you a curriculum that was written by a police officer who's never been in an active shooting situation. What is an officer going to learn from that? Nothing, right? But the city can then check a box. Hey, I don't know why they failed. They had active shooter training. Risk manager's happy. Uh, The insurance company says you had to do it, so we did it. Uh, City Hall said we had to do it, so we did it, and we're good. Ne- move on. No, it's not. It's not the answer. I agree with you, and it needs to be looked at differently. You know, I remember distinctly, 1984. I became a cop, and it was sent out in the street with a 10-layer Kevlar point-blank vest, which they sold us at the time. And this is what they always maintained in NYPD: your vest has to be able to stop your gun in the event that a cop behind you shoots you or somebody grabs your gun and shoots you. Now, a 38 compared to the guns we were picking up off the street. And in apartments, machine guns, AKs, Uzis, 9mm, 45, we were commonly coming up with guns like that. The most common is your basic moron 25. They're out there. But by, the, by and large, they're heavier caliber weapons than we were wearing protection against. And I had a six-shot Smith & Wesson with an ammo pouch that was hard plastic. And if you opened it, it rolled the, the rounds down into the street. And we had a young cop named Scott Goodell die in the line of duty got shot right through his head because he was trying to reload in a gunfight with a drug dealer in Queens. And that's a a travesty. That should never happen. But we were sent out to do a man's job with a kid's tools. And that that happens too often, right? Still happening. Still happening. I mean, there's big city departments where officers don't have Look at L.A., right? LA, no, they, the West know, and, Hollywood and, Bank uh, robbery situation happened like, what, 10, 15 years ago, something like that? Those guys 
with nines, and there was tons of them, were completely outgunned. And they weren't making their shots, right? And yeah, again, a lesson learned that nobody's teaching. Not well, I shouldn't say nobody. Not a lot of people are teaching that, and that could easily happen again, easily. And you know, the marathon bombing is another one that could happen again. But I, I told you guys, I did a, a, a lecture out in in California, and I asked a lot of the officers, "Hey, how many people have read this AAR, the second most significant terrorist attack in our country in recent years?" Right. And not, you know, I would say less than a quarter of the people there had actually seen the AAR. And, um, you know, that, that's kind of mind boggling to me that, that that hasn't happened. You have a military approach where AARs mean something. I, I do. And that was the whole point of the, the, the speech is the relevance of, of our process and how we learn everything we do. We AAR everything, training, anything. It doesn't matter. We sit down and we AAR and how can we make it better? And we do change and we change. And if it doesn't work, we go back to the drawing board and we try something else until we get it right. Because we don't want to figure out we have a problem in combat. We want to figure it out in training. And, you know, I point to Valdi and I look at the AAR from that. And I think 99% of the AAR points could have been figured out in a training environment. And it wasn't. It was figured out while kids were dying. And that's, that's to me, that's the worst part of that whole situation other than the loss of life is the fact that it could have been prevented with proper training. And, and you know, it, it's frustrating, it, it, but it, it also is why we're trying to make this change and, and trying to be uh, you know, make a difference in this community and, and doing it at no charge to the departments. And that's why, you know, it, it is, you, you, you can't find, I mean, I can't, I can't find the words of how great what you're doing is, you know, because you're taking... And everyone, you know, our, our followers, our watchers, our listeners understand this. This is this is a guy who was at the most elite level of the military you can be, okay, on a team, in development group, which everyone can Google and figure out what that is without us getting into it. Uh, you know, and now taking what you did and passing it to law enforcement. That's incredible. I mean, even to take that mantle on to say, I have all these skills in me, you know, me sitting on the couch watching football with all these skills in me, what's that going to do? And you're taking a new mission on to pass on your expertise so a cop doesn't get hurt or you can get into a, a school and save some kids. I mean, it's an incredible uh, accomplishment Sully really and and I don't mean to get all like that but it's just it's so impressive really I mean it's all to me it's all about community safety I told you before I'm service oriented I want to protect my friends family community it's the same thing now I want to protect my friends family community I have kids that go to school I want the cops that respond to my kids school if the unlikely event that it ever happens to know what they're doing and be That's the right. best Not possible be person for the and, job. And, and scared um, and, and, and crapping their pants at the unknown as opposed to having been through realistic scenario training. At least they have a fighting chance. And, I, you know, it, I'm not making Navy SEALs out of police officers, right? I, I'm just, I have 18 years of, of experience and lessons learned from all that training and all those combat operations that I can help teach some fundamental skills and lessons learned that might save your life or might save a child's life or, or a family member you or know, a community member's life. What comes right? to my mind, and it's That's this. It. 
people who join the profession of military and the police assume a risk. And the risk is that you, uh, you may get into a critical incident. You may lose your life, get hurt. You may have to take someone's life. These are risks that are part of the job. When you take it, you assume those risks, you make a commitment, and you dedicate yourself towards protecting others. They make that level of commitment. And if I'm talking right now to anybody who is a city manager, who is a police chief, I would challenge you to make the same commitment back to train them and give them the tools and training they need to be successful. Because when people are as committed as the average person is that goes into law enforcement, the people backing them need to be as committed to their success as they are. So I would challenge them to look up what you're doing, to listen to what you're saying about the vital importance of realistic training from people who have been there again and again and again. So I can't say it enough fervently, Tom and I, we get frustrated when we see men and women being sent out on the street, ill-equipped, ill-trained, to do a job that is life and death. And we bury too many people. Absolutely. That's well said, Dan. Well said. So Sully, how do they, how do they get in touch with you? How do, how does a department, hopefully that's, that's watching this, how do they get, how do they get you? Well, c1p.org. That's the website. Um, you can go there. You can, I can be emailed and reach through there. You have my social media links. Um, community underscore first underscore project is my, uh, Instagram. My personal one is Sully underscore C1P. By all means, reach out to me if I can help in any way. We're, we're starting the push into New York. We've trained a few departments already, but that means we're going to start fundraising in New York. So anybody that wants to help on the fundraising side, um, if you have any listeners that want to sponsor training, we, we've actually had a lot of success with with people sponsoring um, their neighborhood or their community's police departments. Um, also, any any local businesses or even national businesses that want to get involved and, and sponsor us, we're happy to do it and you know rep your brand and, and get people trained so our communities can be safer. So that's it. And, and any officer that has any questions can reach out to me at any time. Uh, complete open door policy. I'll never turn someone down. I'll never not answer an email. It might take me a day or two, but I will always answer. And if I have the budget to do it, I will train every last person I, I can train. So um, I want to help. I'm serious about it. And I, I want to be the resource for law enforcement when you guys have a question about tactics, gear, um, leadership, whatever it is that, that we're here for you. And if I can't answer the question, I've got the guy. Well, or, or well, I mean, that, that Tom and I, 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 it goes without saying, we're honored to have you on the show. We will absolutely have you on again at any time. And we want to let our audience know about events that you have going on, specific fund rate, whatever it is, tell us, we will blast it out in our network for you. And we will do some introducing to people that we think might be in the same vein as you that might be helpful. It, you, we are big, big fans of what you're doing, and uh, yep, and uh, all the all the information that you just provided uh, is going to be on our website. Is going to be on our social media platforms. You know, we're uh, we'll touch base off camera. You know, and get even more information from you that we could get out to everybody. And like Dan just said, we we're so impressed with with your mission with your background and what you're Appreciate able Thank you. and providing for uh, law enforcement today because it's needed. Nobody it's better. really needed. Nobody better than you and your, and, yeah. 
What a pleasure. Appreciate it, guys. What a privilege to get to talk to you and to hear what you're doing. And uh, we wish you, obviously, nothing but the best, and we hope to be along this ride with you. Any way we can support it, we're going to. And if I had money, I'd give you money. appreciate uh, that. (laughs) We'll do what we can do (laughs) for now. Um, Thank you, fellas. I really appreciate it. It was an honor to talk to you guys as well, and I'm always available. Whatever you need. Sounds good. Hey, Dan, you know, like like we do all the time at the end of shows and, and Sully is is an example of this to to pray for our law enforcement officers out there, our first responders, our military vets, uh, because all of them volunteer to do what they're doing. No one's forced to do it. Everyone volunteered for that service and they need a pat on the back every once in a while and they need a wave on the street and they need a, you know, a, a fist bump in the store. You know, when you see them, you know what, if they're behind you in line, buy them what they're buying their, their lunch, you know, go to the cashier and throw your credit card down and buy the person behind you who's in a uniform, you know, their lunch for the day. Uh, all that means more than a, a medal, than a certificate, than a commendation and all that. A thank you means the world to military members, military vets and law enforcement out there. So keep everyone in their prayers uh, for sure. Uh, one more, one last time, uh, go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at gold shields, rumble.com slash gold shields. Hit that subscribe button for free. Uh, get, uh, hit the bell, get notifications on the show and you get to see people like Sully and the great message that he has and the, the mission he's on to just make everyone safer. And that's the goal. Uh, so Dan last time say, uh, <laughs> say what you want, buddy. The only thing I have to say is thank you, Sully, for uh, for being a guest, and not just a guest, but for your passion and for your uh, commitment and your mission. Um, we have a similar mission, and whenever we get somebody on the show who, who shares that mission, we just want you to know we're with you. Anything we can do to help you, we're going to do it, and I know our audience is going to respond. So uh, let's let's take this fight, you know, to the next level. It's vital for the policing profession. It's vital for the communities. It's vital to making America safer in so many ways starts in every little neighborhood, every town, every County. And, uh, thank you for doing what you do. And, um, I know we'll be in touch. Let's put it that way. I appreciate Absolutely. you guys. And, and thank you for your service oh, as well. You. All the best. Um, it was a great conversation. For, uh, Sully, for my partner, Dan Murphy, this is Tom Smith. Have a great, uh, holiday. And we will be talking to everybody very shortly. And everyone out there, stay safe.